Please note that this episode contains graphic depictions of cults, sex, and emotional abuse, as well as graphic language, which some people may find disturbing. If you are not old enough to watch a PG-13 movie, or if you are but think you might get nightmares from such content, I suggest exiting off my podcast and going to www.neopets.com. Otherwise, enjoy! I'm here with Marshall, a former coworker of mine who let me know one day over coffee that he grew up in a cult. I'm here today to talk with him about it, and I don't know what to expect. Yeah, um, so I think like the idea of growing up in a cult isn't right. I spent time in a cult as a teenager. I grew up, well, I was going to say normal, but that's not right. But I learned a lot throughout the process, and it kind of changed the direction of my life in certain ways. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like you grew up in a cult. Also, you left our company to go work for Tesla. So it's like you're still in a cult. You've never left the cult. Cults are just just a part of your life, Marshall. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to comment on that, obviously. But yeah, I, I could see how someone would think that. So tell me about your cult. What were they a cult of? Was this like a Jim Jones cult or was it more like a Soul Cycle cult? Okay, I don't know what the hell Soul Cycle is. This was a cult. In a certain sense, it made sense. A lot of these cults out here, you wonder about them because they don't really get a lot out of it. You know, maybe community or, or whatever. This cult had a ton of money and it was based on psychological theories and it was built on transference, which is sort of an exploitation of psychological practice. So the people who joined had a sense of community and all the traditional reasons people join cults. But along with that, living a life around a lot of money, getting to exploit things that people can buy with a lot of money. And the reason I say they they didn't get the money is because, of course, no one could really hold on to the money, but they lived the same lifestyle of millionaires. So on that level, it made sense. And so that's the kind of cult that was. But it also engenders the type of people who are cynically exploiting the cult. And I think the percentage of those people is way higher than some of the people in the cult realize. That being said, though, there were plenty of true believers there as well. I feel like I got a lot of information and yet none at all. Marshall, don't laugh. So what was what was the cult's philosophy? What what was the point of the cult? I don't know what your cult is. So it's a cult where people transfer emotions onto each other and everyone has a lot of money. This sounds like a city we live in currently. This cult was started by one therapist who had clientele that were either old, wealthy, business-owning men or desperate women, younger women, who either had drug problems or family problems, stuff like that. So what this guy did, and I'm not sure when this happened, but I would imagine it was like the 90s, something like that, is just naturally, when you're seeing the same therapist for years, you start to believe that they're like family. A lot of times, patients fall in love with their therapists and all this kind of stuff. And this guy, the guy who started it, the leader, because of insecurity, and we can get into that, 
allowed the transference to happen and probably even encouraged it. And so he basically had a group of really wealthy men who essentially handed over a lot of this wealth to him because they felt that close to him and because he was able to manipulate them into doing that. And at the same time, all these young women in the same position who didn't have money, but obviously they had other things to offer. And so what became of that was kind of this hedonistic, but not fun. That's what's interesting about it. It was a certain kind of hedonism where, you know, they they could live opulently. But again, he was the only guy that actually controlled the money in the end, right? So, you know, they lived like they had a lot of money. They got to travel all over the world. They eat at the finest restaurants. They're given money here and there that they can spend on things as long as, you know, the inner circle and the leader think it's okay. You know, everyone in it lives pretty opulently, but they don't actually have access to the money. And if it's seen that they don't believe in the mission of the cult or, you know, everyone's kind of assessed at all times. And any indicator that someone is even remotely oppositional to the leader or to the aims of the group you know their value in the group lowers in real time and it's pretty amazing like i saw a lot of shunning and i saw you know and it's very subtle but a lot of subtle things that add up you know people recognize that really quickly that was pretty much how it worked that was how it began and again i have to emphasize this i actually found the autobiography of the leader when they were out on one of their worldwide trips because again my family my whole family was brought in we weren't a part of this and i was like 17 my brother was 14 we had already formed our belief systems to an extent and our worldview and all this stuff so they weren't ever going to like get us to be full bore members of this thing and so yeah they left on this long trip i found the autobiography of the leader he seemed sex obsessed but at the same time incredibly insecure in college, he had, you know, a ton of anxiety about sitting in a classroom. And imagine the level of anxiety that would take to spend 13 years in a classroom, go off to college and still have these high levels of anxiety. Okay, okay, hold up. Pause. Rewind. I have to know, how did you get involved in this? How did your family get brought in? I feel like that's a really important piece before we talk about who the leader is and how insecure and sex obsessed he is. My dad had a very, very low level of fame for his sort of expertise, which was similar to psychology. It's a similar type of thing. And he had material that was available in the public, in libraries and stuff, and online, but this was like the early days of the internet. And he also had a reputation in the area because he would give courses to really wealthy people and they saw his lectures they saw his talks and they wanted to incorporate his thing into their cult right so they wanted to sort of give him a night to talk and and all this stuff and so the way it happened this is the cool part this is the crazy part my family was always relatively broke i know everyone says that but we were moving from apartment to apartment my dad's job didn't really pay all that much and, and my mom didn't usually work and so we were constantly on the edge of, of disaster. And so we were invited to visit for a weekend. And we go out there and it is gorgeous. Multiple houses, massive houses, all these vehicles, you know, Alfa Romeos and Hummers and all this kind of stuff. A swimming pool with pool houses, ATV trails, like 
massive property and property in a really expensive area. And so we went out there and it was a weekend of just fun, you know, playing basketball, swimming. There were all these girls. I was 17. There were all these girls my age and they were super interested because they never met people from the outside world before, really. It was super weird. And so my family had a blast, like, obviously. And on the last day, at the last minute, the leader met with my dad and basically said, hey, do you want to do this thing? You can help us with the stuff we're working on. You can live here free. And then you can deliver talks once a week. And so that's how we got in there. And I've got to say, it felt sort of like a movie, right? I think we realized something was amiss, but we also knew we'd be okay. And so it felt like a movie. Oh my God, our standard of living is about to change drastically for as long as we can tolerate it. Did your parents have any reservations about going into this place where there were lots of expensive cars and young women and old men? Did they think maybe this is not a good environment for our two teenage boys? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the economic situation dictated a lot of it. Our entire childhood was mostly in places that people would consider somewhat dangerous, not the best places to raise kids. So I don't know that that was a huge consideration. And I think there's a certain thing of like, well, they're going to get a lot of life lessons from living like this or whatever. That said, of course, there were reservations, right? If you imagine exposing, you know, your teenage children to this kind of lifestyle, I think the worry would be, well, they're going to get caught up in this. They're going to get caught up in this sort of materialistic thing. And one thing to make clear at this point, the central thesis of this group is that the family is the root of all problems, right? So any organizational structure, and I would even say like late stage capitalism to an extent, has to break down other forms of control and worldview and all of this. So to establish their worldview, they're also super anti-religious, right? So you have to destroy the other structures that existed before and replace them. So they would replace religion and family and this kind of stuff with their ideology. But the central tenet was the family is the problem. And this works really well for a cult, right? Because now you have a group of people in the sort of commune environment that feel unmoored, right? Their parents aren't really their parents, you know, and they're taught this from a very young age. Every adult around is one of their parents, which also would lead to a lot of shady shit happening, right? I wonder what they would have done if you had both been born girls or if one of you had been born a girl. I wonder if they would have brought you in. So speaking of girls, if there were young girls in the cult under the age of 18, were they the children of the old men and the young women that were initially brought in? What a great question. You're pretty good at this. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the people. I mean, people came in later, obviously, right? They grew. But a lot of the people that were there were, you know, it would be like one or two of the people in the inner circle with the young women they brought in. So, yeah, that those were a lot of the kids that were there. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of them. Okay, so we're going to set the stage on what this cult was exactly. So... What was the leader like? Can you describe him to the best of your ability? Because I know there are some privacy safeguards. Privacy safe rails. I don't... Safe rails or safeguards? There are some privacy safeguards we have around this. Can you tell me what was he like? What did he look like? And if you can't tell me what he looked like, can you describe his presence? 
So he he was an older man. I would say even older than a lot of the other older men that were around. They definitely viewed him as sort of almost a father figure, which was the most pathetic thing to see a 60 year old treat, you know, someone older than them as a parent. Like who even needs a father figure at 60? By then you should have your, your shit together. But anyway, so he was very smug. He knew the score. He would move very slowly and deliberately around a room. And when he was out and about, which he wasn't out and about all the time, right? He spent a lot of time off in his own little area. But when he would come out, there'd be a gaggle of these people following him around. And he responded to that in the way that I think a lot of people would, you know, unless they're being mobbed or something. So he would act like the things I'm doing are so important everything you know if i sneeze it's important and so that was his his general demeanor which i imagined developed as the cult developed right and by the time we got there he was very comfortable in his position it was pretty well established but yeah i mean that that was the main thing of how he acted is is very smug understood to people that aren't in the cult and didn't suffer that transference or aren't the the personality type that would ever fall for this kind of thing you could see through his act. You could see the insecurity. You could see the, like, he had to live this way. If he didn't have this, he would have been just another tortured person, you know, stuck in his apartment or something like that. So just as a note for my listeners, transference is when you are seeing a therapist or a person and you put their emotions that you are feeling towards a situation onto them. Usually they're positive emotions. So you can fall in love with your therapist through transference. You can see your relationship with your therapist as a lot closer than it actually is. That's what transference is. Did you transfer onto him? I'm, I'm just kidding. Did you transfer onto him? Um, that sounds like a syndrome. What were your interactions with this man like? How often did you talk to him and what did he say to you? So they would have these group discussions and I was invited to one, not at the beginning. They were smart about this. They didn't try to start swaying us for the first like two months or so. Instead, you know, I'm surrounded by girls about my age, all attractive. And one of the daughters of this guy was one of my first major girlfriends. And so that alone was a draw, right? So they waited for that to develop. I think they saw some of that developing and were like, okay, we're good, right? So then I was invited to one of these talks and these talks sort of And again, this is such malpractice, really, in my opinion. These talks were just sort of reliving trauma, reliving trauma, reliving trauma, obsessing in the trauma, like burying yourself in the trauma over and over and over again. And so I was invited to one of these and asked about my traumas. And I'm in a room of strangers and I'm a normal person. And so I was just like, oh, you know what? As I get more comfortable, I'm sure I'll talk about this stuff. But right now I just don't feel comfortable talking about it. And the leader immediately reacted. I could see like a facial expression of disapproval. I looked around the room and I saw it there too. I didn't give a shit about it because again, this was all free money. You know, it was like winning the roulette wheel in Vegas on the first day. You know, you're going to blow a lot of that cash because it's not real money. So to us, this wasn't real. And I think we knew it never would be. And so the first interaction was not good, but he was in a tough position, right? Because one of his kids was like, 
into me hardcore by the way and i'm not bragging but it's just true but in, in any case so that was the first interaction i have to ask do you think that maybe the 17 year old girl that was dating 17 year old marshall do you think maybe she was a honeypot do you think she was actually into you or maybe she was instructed by her father to seduce you that's a great question i gotta say Oh my God, I almost put this really crudely. I don't want to do that. No, she was into me. Yeah, my podcast is PG. It's PG. We don't, we don't talk about... I have never said a bad word in my life. Yeah, no, I think this was, I, this was real. So tell me, so you had that interaction. His daughter was madly in love with you. He disapproved that you did not want to open up about your trauma. And I just want to know, if you talk about your trauma repeatedly... There is an effect on your mind where it re-traumatizes you and keeps you stuck. It's actually a really strong principle in CBT to identify the trauma and figure out strategies for you to not think about it. So what he's doing, what he was doing, that's definitely malpractice. So you were like, I'm not doing this. What else happened? Okay, so I'm so glad you put that context because those are things I thought about saying and forgot as we're going through it. And again, I'm calling it malpractice, but none of this was in the context of any actual, there was no longer an actual patient-doctor relationship or anything like that. I mean, once you're in this group, that no longer applies, right? This is just their social organization and their rituals and customs or something like that. So that leads to, I mean, there were multiple similar interactions to the one I just described because this was a weekly thing. My second interaction was pretty funny. I had a mini breakdown at some point when we were living there. I had kind of distanced myself from that girl because I knew myself. And I knew that if I let myself go too far with that, I would stay. I would be there today. I'd probably be married to this person, totally wrapped up in this stuff and living like a good life materially, but spiritually in every other way, being sort of enthralled to these people, like a lot of people are. But my second interaction was pretty good. Me and my brother raided the wine cellar one evening and we had a blast. It was so much fun. We got super messed up. I almost, <laughs> I almost broke the rules. And I don't know, I just got in this mood where my disgust at these older men, this was a constant for me, is seeing full-grown adults just supplicating themselves or being sycophants to this guy, I don't know the best way to put it, just permeated this thing. And you could tell the ones that were really into it and ones that weren't. And so those people I kind of had a grudging respect for. It's like, hey, get that bag or whatever, you know? But a lot of them didn't have that. And so I got really, really drunk and I started going around this place pounding on people's doors, come out, explain to me why you're like this. You're a fuck, you're a coward. You're this, you're that. And no one came out. I'm not saying this was good, but I think I just got so tired of these stilted conversations, especially with the kids, because we were trying to slowly get them to see the larger world, you know, but anytime, you know, if you ventured too far on topics that were about the normal world or anything that was remotely critical, you know, you could not say the word cult. They would freak out. Their eyes would gloss over. They'd get upset. And so this finally wore me down. And so that I finally passed out three or four in the morning. I don't know. And they had this practice of getting up really early and doing construction projects. And this is something that happens in cults. There's a lot of like, get up early, stay up late, 
you know, stuff that keeps you mentally scattered, right? It's hard to focus when you're not getting enough sleep. It's hard to like form a sense of self and stuff like this. There are studies that show this. And so they were up early digging trenches and all this kind of stuff. And I went out there just sort of to hang out. One of the benefits of being one of the kids is I didn't have to participate in this stuff. And people just knew that. They're like, hey, you know, we can't make this guy do this. So I was just kind of hanging out and the leader comes marching down from like the inner sanctum place and uh, just starts yelling at me. And and my thing was just and this is how I would always, I think, deal with this is I was just like, hey, I overdid it. I'm sorry. And the really funny part about this is he was like, you are going to replace all that wine. Right. So I'm thinking these people are loaded it's going to take me 10 years to pay it back. But I understood that. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. I was also working with an actual construction crew at the place and getting paid for that, like under the table. I was also doing other work and getting paid for that. So I went through the trash and I, I got the names of the wines, right? Then I went into town and the first place I went was one of the grocery stores. I don't know where to go. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, how much are these things, right? And I'm going through and I'm looking at them. These, now again, this was a while ago. These were $4 bottle of wine. These were like the cheapest wine you could get. I was totally shocked by this. But this was something in a sense that was normal. These people had no taste. They, they had a chef come out from Spain to make paella, they all hated it. So for like a month, well, maybe not that long, it probably went bad, but for a long time, I would get home from school, pop open some freaking paella. I was eating literally like a king. These people had no taste there. When they would cook, it was super bland and boring. So of course the kids loved us, right? We're taking them to these restaurants and like, oh my God, you know, this is what like good food tastes like, stuff like that. I wonder how many children, how many of the girls you took out, how many kids belonged to him? How many children did he make with the women at the cult? So that's a really good question. So he had a, a lot, many of them older adults. Now, another funny thing is a lot of the kids were named after him in different ways, which was just uh, real quick, though, back to the wine thing. I think I like went back. I had the money already. I gave this dude like 40 bucks. And like, that was it. That was that. That still blows my mind to this day. How are you buying the cheapest wine when you're loaded? Like, this is like pocket change to this dude. Like, buy some good wine. So cult members had no taste. He seemed to be just funneling in money and providing a seemingly luxurious, but not really luxurious experience. What were some of the end goals of this cult? What was the cult's philosophy? What were the members working towards? What did they think was wrong with them? And was there a sort of salvation they were trying to achieve? If so, what was that? I don't know that there was a stated end goal, but I know it was a thing of we're, we're going to live the right way. We're going to fix how humanity organizes itself. And we're going to live in this like communal way where... All the adults are parenting all the kids and all these horrible things that happen because of families. We're going to get rid of that stuff. And then on a personal level, well, if we just keep talking this out, one day we'll be normal, right? We'll be fixed. And of course, the funny thing about that is in so many ways, 
so many of the habits that were going on were just keeping their neuroses going, feeding their problems. Again, the lack of sleep, the constant moving around, the jockeying for position, you know, living at the different places, because that was one of the ways they would measure things. It's like, which house did you live in? Did you live in the apartments that weren't on site or whatever? And so they thought they were going through this process of like organizing themselves in a better way while at the same time resolving their personal issues. And a lot of these people, like what enabled this, they had major problems. When I would talk to these people about their back, you know, the people that were there at the beginning, there was some horrifying stuff. And so that that was it. We're going to fix all the issues that call, cause all the neuroses and everyone. But I don't, you know, it's so funny when I think about that, it's so obviously illogical that I almost want to project onto them that they knew it would be an ongoing process. I don't think they did. I think they actually thought that they would hit the end goal and be perfect. My brain is perfect now. All my problems are gone now. So that's what I think it was about. So the leader, his philosophy was family is wrong. Family is bad. All structure is wrong. All structure is bad. Destroy your structures and follow my structure by giving me all your money and time. That was basically it. And and one of the things you would notice with these people is, of course, becoming a part of this group introduces all these other contradictions and all these other problems. And so now you're dealing with how much autonomy do I have? Is this the right path? I mean, you would see people struggle with this stuff while at the same time, the trauma being reified over and over again. So now they have their old trauma and they had these the new trauma because I do think there's just some part of the human spirit that kind of yearns to to have their own identity and that was a constant process of being like stifled and i think i think a lot of people did feel that and especially you would notice the people that had been sort of sent more to the periphery you know they were like quote unquote in trouble they were wrestling with that kind of stuff so if anything it added more trauma to their lives Yeah, it does sound like a traumatic experience. I have to wonder, so ages 14 to 17 are prime ages for identity formation. Teenagers are trying on all sorts of new concepts, right? You can change your gender, your sexuality, your look, your political system, your religion. You are essentially just trying on tons of different things. You say you were very strong-willed. How did this leader impact how you developed as a person? Did he have any impact? Did he make you maybe more resolute in who you were because you had to constantly defend yourself? Can you tell me about that? I will say there there were aftershocks of this. I remember going off to college and when I was in the dorms, like I couldn't get it out of my head that everyone else was involved in something that could be hostile to me. Because again, like as I was moving away, from that person I was with, like adults would give me the cold shoulder. I would get these looks, all these people that we would go out with that. And and I will give credit. There were a couple of people who never let it affect them and they still treated me normal. But to see the entire mood of this community sort of turn against you um, was a really weird feeling. And I think that affected me for a short time at college. I, I mean, I out, I outgrew that, but if anything, yeah, it, it reinforced a lot of, the sort of criticisms I would have of groupthink. So speaking of groupthink, what were some examples of groupthink that you noticed when you were in the cult? Was there anything weird that people did, maybe as a collective, other than working in construction and going through these very long trauma sessions? 
Yeah, in a lot of ways, there wasn't a lot of that. There was a lot of normalcy in people's behavior. The major things revolved around any kind of criticism of the group, especially criticism of the leader. I mean, it's a weird behavior when everyone's getting up at 6.30 and digging trenches. Like, that's weird. But one of the weirdest things was that adults didn't get the most common references you can imagine. I remember I made a mixtape. They were going on one of, they would go on these like boating trips, you know, and that's a common thing too. It's like isolating people off in their own little group, not even a part of society out in a freaking ocean, you know? And I made a mixtape for the girl I was seeing. And when they got back, one of the adults was really bad at me. And he was like, you didn't know those songs. Your dad made that for you. And I was just like, no, that's not true. And I started telling him other songs on the albums and this kind of stuff because these people had very little frame of reference. You would make jokes about like basic things that anyone would get and you'd get these blank looks from adults, people in their 30s and 40s. So that was one of the odd things. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was other stuff. Obviously, the shunning was strange. I've never gone through something like that since then. But outside of that stuff, when you weren't dealing with that stuff, when they weren't following this guy around, they seemed like just about anyone else, you know? Well, Marshall, of course you're going to get shunned. You dumped the leader's daughter. What did you think was going to happen to you in a cult if you were dating the daughter of the cult leader? And then you dump her and you're like, bye, girl, I'm going to go to college and never see you again. What do you think is going to happen to you? All right, look, <laughs> I wasn't that stupid. It wasn't that written in stone. I knew I had to distance myself so that I wouldn't get ensnared in this whole thing. But my thing was just, hey, we should have some distance and be friends for a while and figure this out. Right. Because like this is so new. This is so different, whatever. But that was enough. Like that was enough of a thing because I think this thing was so tightly socially calibrated. Right. That if you think about this, like if people make expressions or don't aren't enthusiastic enough, they would get shunned, too. So you can imagine like this was probably a huge deal. And this was someone, by the way, her friends would treat her like she was better than them. Um, and she acted like she was better than other people. Um, and so she had never faced anything remotely like this, right? So she probably took it in, in a, in a really strong way, but there was a turning point where I was like, okay, they're getting, they're pushing harder and harder to bring us into the fold. And so now it's kind of time to, am I going to consider this or which I don't think I was seriously considering or Am I going to find an out? But to do that, I had to like push myself away, right? Because I knew I was too weak, right? Like given certain circumstances, especially at that age, I would have been like, eh, let's just write this thing out. And I think that that was the beginning of the end there. And it, it was like a kind of back and forth thing, right? So we sort of came back together and sort of split again. And I will say by the end of it, I mean, we ran. They didn't see it coming. They left for long enough for us to get out of there. And I left a note behind, but that's it. And then, of course, I found out later that after that, they spent a long time turning everyone against us, right? Like, those people were horrible. This is why we don't open ourselves up to the world. They tried to destroy, you know, blah, 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 blah. Which they weren't wrong in some aspects, I guess, of that. So let me get this straight. You tried to run away with the cult leader's daughter? No, my family ran away. She would never. 
Now, she was royalty there. That would never happen. But I knew I had to put myself in a position where I was willing to run away. And the whole family, like we would occasionally have dinners and stuff like that. And there was finally a time when it was like, okay, the next chance we get, we are packing our stuff. Like get your stuff ready to pack. We're packing our stuff and we are getting the hell out of here. And that's how we did it. I think they left for like three days and we spent that time packing up. The funny thing is uh, we had to pick some things up from this other apartment building they had that was gated. And as we were leaving, one of the main inner circle people pulled up going the other way. I was like, Hey guys. And like, we had one of those little U-Hauls and like the whole, (laughs) we had this like van and it was all full of stuff. Like, Hey, like, where are you going? Ah, we're just taking some stuff back to the other place. And uh, there was just this moment of like, oh my God, like this dude. Because the thing is, think about this. We were there for nine months. So you're thinking somehow this guy is going to bring us back in. Now, logically, that's not possible, right? Like we're people, like we're in a country where, you know, they can't do this and they don't have that level of power. But you're so used to living under that, that there was this fear of like, oh my God, they're going to like drag us back in. But that was it. We got the hell out of there. Whoa, many questions. I'm going to start with, why couldn't you just leave when everyone in the cult was there? You were there voluntarily. You hadn't signed any contracts. Why could you simply not say, hey, Mr. Cult Leader with the many children and the daughter who's in love with me, we're going to go. We're going to peace out. We're not going to deconstruction and drink $4 wine. We're going to go somewhere more fun. Yeah, that's a great question because it wouldn't have been... The reaction would have been extreme, not because, oh, we need to keep these people here, but because it's such a refutation, right? They got these broke people from the regular world, introduced them to a life that most people only see on TV or whatever, and they're still leaving. Like, that's a huge repudiation of the stuff they're saying. So I believe, and I think we all believed, what would generally happen is there would be some physical level of restraint, meaning like they're not going to open the gate. And then a really strong emotional sort of reaction and then a really strong push to try to get us to stay. And it just would have been, it would have been really rough. Um, And then from then on, things would have been really weird no matter what we did. When I was a child, I remember watching The Stepford Wives, the 1970s version. And there is a scene where the main character, I think her name was Catherine, goes and sees a therapist and tells the therapist something's wrong with Stepford and she goes into it and the therapist in a very I feel like unique moment in movies does not say you're crazy you're wrong nothing's that bad she just goes get your kids get the hell out of Stepford what was your family's get the hell out of Stepford moment that is a great question okay so there was a time when they called the whole family up right so they got one of my family members sort of to crack they had one family member who they they thought and they were probably right that they could convert so they had her up in the big house where the inner circle stayed and they were grilling her and she was talking and so all of a sudden people come to my dad to me hey you need to come up to the the big house it's really important we're having an important meeting because they wanted us to see what was happening right And they basically had this family member of mine crying, spilling their guts. And it was humiliating, obviously, for me, because I just thought it was so pathetic. And this was the moment, because I think their thing was, 
Now you have to stay. Look what you would be doing to this person if you leave. We're helping, right? But I already knew from the get-go it wasn't helping. Just through intuition or whatever. Not that I knew anything about it. I learned about this stuff later. And I do think the reason I was a psych major, A, because it's easy, but also because I saw these things happen and I wanted to know how and why people would do this stuff. But anyway, they brought us up there and that was the moment when I think we all truly realized the lengths they would go to to try to get us to accept their worldview, their way of life, and that it wasn't going to end. They weren't going to leave us alone until we all did what this person was doing. At that point, we got together. We had a conversation. We we're like, ah, it's over. This was fun. There was so much fun stuff and so much money being thrown around. I mean, everyone in my family, cash was being thrown at us, right? And because at the beginning, you know, it's like a drug dealer when they give you like a free, which I've never had a drug dealer do that, but supposedly they give you a free taste and then you come back for more. They would throw money at you at first, but if you got involved, you know, you're giving a lot of that money right back. So I just want to make that clear. But that was the moment we were like, okay, this is it. We had our fun, but they're not going to let us continue the way we have for much longer. How much money was thrown at you? I'll just put it like this. I had two jobs. I had one with a real company working on the place because the stuff they had them do was nonsense. But then I had my fake job with them. A lady would come in at the end of the thing I was doing because I really don't want to get into specifics. And she would have a pile of 20s. She would go, how much should I pay you? Because they had no conception of money. I went on a trip with them one time and the kids were spending like 500 bucks on a gold paperweight. It was like playing a game with a cheat code or something. They didn't know what, they didn't understand money. So she'd have a stack of 20s and she would just start putting them in my hand. And she would go, well, just let me know when you feel like it's been enough. And this wasn't, she wasn't being savvy about it. She was just utterly clueless. And I grew up broke. So I just let her keep stacking 20s into my hand for each time I did my job there. It would be like 400 bucks. Now think about this. I'm 17 and I grew up broke. I was like, what is this? What, you know, what the hell is going on here? Now that said, the funny part is I didn't walk away with a heck of a lot of money because again, we were going out every night and going to really nice places. And like, <laughs> I didn't grow up knowing anything about how to like manage my money. Tell me about the trips you took with this cult. What were they like? Where'd you go? Can you tell me where you went? What hotels did you stay at? did you fall out? That's just a side question because I have more serious ones, but I'm just curious. Well, we would go to to major cities. So I only did one of them because I was kind of worried about that. So I went on a trip to San Francisco and someone else in my family went on a trip to Orlando. We would do things like, I don't know, Universal City or something like that. We'd go in a big old bus and like all the kids would go and stuff. It's weird to see people with that amount of wealth travel. And you can you could determine immediately the ones who had grown up in the cult and the ones who hadn't, because the ones who hadn't had some kind of context, the ones who had, it was almost like there was no point in traveling, right? Because they're not going to get to know anyone as they walk around. They're not going to be comfortable like talking to people as they go around. When, when money has no value and you know you never really struggle in that sense, you just don't appreciate the things around you, right? So they would just like zombies just kind of wander through the city. But then you could tell the people who had grown up like normal, so to speak, or like in normal economic conditions would have the trip like anyone else and like 
oh, this is cool. It's the pier. It's Alcatraz. It's look at this cool city, whatever, you know. So that that's how I would put On the boating trips they took, were there ever times in which some members did not come back? That's a great question. There's no way I could track that. There were too many people. I really doubt it. Ooh, I will say I got to drive a yacht one time. So that was cool. But other than that, so people came back. I don't think anyone was, I don't think anyone was hurt. I think people were driven out. Marshall, I do not care that you drove a yacht when you were 17. You had no business driving a yacht. I want to know if, I want to know if the leader had anybody whacked off. That was what I was asking. Yeah, you put that really weird. Um, I don't think, I, I don't think, I can't get over that. I'm too immature. I, I can't think of any instance like that it was more of a shunning and um you know it was pretty brutal when people got ejected right because that that's kind of how they would do it now they wouldn't let us see that part but i got a glimpse of that you know they'd all get together they'd wear the person down and they'd basically say hey get out don't come back and, and also sometimes it would be apparent right so there was a guy, I would say, in his 50s, and his kid was, like, in his 20s. He got ejected. The kid stayed, willingly stayed. I can only imagine, and this kid was a true believer. I can only imagine how heartbreaking that was. But, yeah, that's how they would kick you out. I don't think there was anything. These people were were too cowardly to do that kind of stuff. I, I don't want to, I don't know how to put it exactly, but they just, it was all psychological. Got it. So no Kool-Aid here. That's good for you, I guess. So the leader never killed anybody. What would cause the cult to shun someone or say, you can't be here anymore? What would happen? So if someone in one of the meetings took a really hard stance to like, hey, this isn't working or hey, this doesn't make sense. If they started to do that, I would say even more than once, it was kind of like, okay, that's it. And it would be like, it would be known we're having a special session, right? And everyone would be there. People would come up from other towns and other properties they own to be there. And then that person would basically be browbeaten and then sent on their way. It was effective, right? Because you don't want to stay in a room like that, right? You don't want to stay. So that was more how that was done. Obviously, I can't say for certain, right? I mean, who knows? Maybe some weird stuff went down. And there were a lot of people coming and going. I don't know all the people, but I would be very surprised if there were any kind of actual, you know, violent consequences or anything like that. When people were removed from the cult, right, when they were exiled, did they lose their bank accounts, their savings, their possessions, or were they allowed to take them? Yeah, that's another great question. Many of these people didn't have those things. They would have the amount of cash, because again, a lot of this was under the table. They'd have the amount of cash that they had not yet surrendered back to the group. And then hopefully family and friends out there, right? But a lot of these people no longer had that. You can't bring your possessions to a place that's fully furnished and there's people already there and stuff. I mean, you're going to have your clothes maybe and stuff like that. A lot of these people didn't even have bank accounts anymore because they just weren't operating like that. You know, it was all cash. Tell me about the day you and your family finally got out of Stepford. I think the term is out of Dodge, but I like out of Stepford. Tell me about that day. What did that feel like? Were you nervous? Were you excited? And how did you feel after? Yeah, well, so I would imagine it's about as close. And I hate to make this comparison because it wasn't as bad, but it really was like fleeing maybe East Germany or something like that. I mean, obviously, you don't have the physical things. There aren't guns pointed at you and stuff. 
but it was this thing of like oh my god what if we don't make it what if what if they catch us what if because like the place was pretty much empty the people that were there didn't really believe in the stuff because we would sit there and talk about it now of course None of the other people in the group knew that, right? They were very good at hiding it. That was the worry. It's like, oh my God, one of the people who cares is going to come back. They're going to contact the other people and we're going to get screwed somehow, or it's just going to be super uncomfortable. But yeah, the day, (laughs) it's funny you ask this. The day we left, I went around. (laughs) This is not, I'm not proud of this. Grabbing watches, shirts, like I got the best polo shirt I've ever had. Um, it lasted for like 10 years. It was the most comfy thing ever. And I think it was me lashing out to an extent or whatever. But that was the last day. It's this mad scramble to get out of there, make sure we weren't seen. And my only regret with that is I wish I had grabbed that autobiography. That That is a real bummer because I don't think anyone knew that I knew where it was or whatever. Because we'd been doing construction near there, near that room. And that's how I saw it. So So that was the main thing is just let's get out of here without being caught. Oh, I also took, so we went to this other property to get more of our stuff. And I knew where they kept all these like photos, these old photos. And I was like, well, I want to remember this. And this is pre cell phones and all that stuff. I want to remember this crazy time. So I knew sort of where certain photos were from the years we were there. And so I grabbed some of those and those are my only record that really prove that we were ever there. And so I have a handful of those digitized and scanned on my computer. But but other than that, we just packed up our stuff and got the heck out. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much that. You did not wait this long to tell me the cult leader had an autobiography. How did you get that? What did what was in it? You mentioned it earlier. Okay. So let's... So let's oh, yeah. It's a cult leader's autobiography. Did you read it? And if you did, you read it. What was in it? Okay, I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of this stuff. I could not put it down um, because it was fascinating. This was a really important moment, too. I mean, to give you, uh, I probably shouldn't get that specific, but his, his level of anxiety as a college kid was unreal. Also, his background, he would always like, oh, I grew up poor. You know, like I said before, everyone says they grew up poor, right? But in the autobiography, I found out One of his parents was a doctor. One of his parents was a lawyer. There's no way this dude grew up poor. But yeah, just the anxieties, the the obsession with sex. The he was a super like late bloomer as well, and really infantile in his approach to relationships and to the world. And if you think about that, it makes sense, right? When you have a kid, they reach this age where they're just incredibly selfish. And he had this sort of arrested development thing where he was always in that. So those were the things I really remembered along with, you know, as I'm reading it, I'm just thinking like, this would be such a turnoff to anyone who wasn't in the stupid cult. Because throughout it, there was this like grandiosity, like, of course, I'm great. Of course, people want to hear my story. And meanwhile, it's just the story of some fucked up neurotic asshole, right? Who like, couldn't deal in college. I can only imagine the sheltered, weird, you know, civil tier stuff that he grew up experiencing with his like wealthy parents to not be able to deal at that kind of level as an adult, as a young adult. And, and so that was an interesting part of it too. And that was something I actually really enjoyed is reading it and imagining someone who didn't know the context, reading this like a normal autobiography and just hearing all this grandiosity mixed with the facts 
that were super pathetic. So it made for a real interesting read. I don't remember any specific events outside of that other than like specific things he did that the anxiety caused in college that you just would not believe. I don't even want to say it because I'm afraid that might trace back, but just unbelievable stuff. And again, just the infantile, I deserve everything. You know, we we built this amazing thing kind of attitude that the book had. Do you think cult leaders are mentally ill? And if so, what might be their diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I think they're mentally ill. I think a lot of us are mentally ill to a degree. I mean, that was a lot of it as it was a degree thing, right? I, I think it's like extreme narcissism, extreme lack of empathy mixed with extreme insecurity. That's the shocking thing about this is the, the fundamental engine of this thing is extreme insecurity. And all of this is mixed with just luck, just the way things shake out. You know, if he had chosen a different profession, that would have everything would have been different. You know, this wasn't something that was bound to happen. But I think if you mix those three things, you know, just extreme narcissism, extreme just not caring about anyone else with that insecurity that requires constant sort of reaffirmation and and this kind of thing. The interesting thing is I feel like if somehow everything just ended and everyone walked away, the consequences for this person would have been unbelievable i mean probably suicide or homelessness or whatever like that would have been it it would have been a psychic break you could tell this person needed that and so i don't know how common it is right this is my experience but that would be sort of what i would think is it fair to think that cult devotees have weak characters okay this is interesting i try not to pass moral judgments on these people but it is hard i think when you say weak character it's sort of um you're essentializing them in a certain way that maybe isn't fair because there is a lot of stuff. One thing I think we just don't like to acknowledge as people, luck plays a huge role in how things turn out. We want to take credit for things and this kind of stuff. But I think luck has a lot to do with it. My life is is amazing right now. But a lot of that was luck. It was fortune. It was where I ended up. Some of it was by my effort, but a lot of it was just where I was, specific decisions other people made. So I think some of that is true here, but I can, I can see a case for, you know, they suffered extreme trauma as kids. I think that leads to some depersonalization. And so you're really vulnerable to that kind of stuff. And I will say when I was there, and especially as a teenager, because you, you really start to judge adults pretty harshly anyway, that I certainly saw them as people with incredibly weak character, incredibly weak sense of ethics or whatever. They needed someone else to tell them what was right and wrong. They needed, you know, they needed affirmation too, right? From everyone around them and constantly. But I also feel like, you know, again, all of these behaviors, I, we all exhibit to a, to a degree. And when I see it in the general population or online, especially, you know, it's similarly somewhat pathetic, but I don't know that I can cast that kind of judgment on them. I don't know what the story was. And I don't think like on the on the crazy chance that anyone's able to figure out the group I'm talking about or whatever, leave these people alone. They're going to have to take their own route. They're going to have to figure things out. They're not evil people, or at least the ones that I was around. They're just, you know, really, really powerful in-group preference, life events, leading them there, doing the best they can. And some of these people in the years since, I'm friends with some of them, and they got out of it. And they got actual help, you know, from actual professionals and learned. And some of these people were people born in the place. So it is possible to get out, but I just don't think interfering will help. If anything, they will circle the wagons and you'll just be 
making things worse. So on the off chance anyone could figure this out, leave these people alone. What qualities do you think would make someone potentially more susceptible to a cult or a similar scam? Also, would you consider cults as scams? The only reason I'm going to say cults aren't a scam, I do think the people running the cult believe it. They really believe it. Now, a lot of that self-interest, this is something that I think about from time to time, is how much our familial relationships and other relationships, you feel them very strongly and you feel them in this honest way, but how much of it is like selfish or whatever. I think we all think about that from time to time. And I think you were asking me what kind of person would be vulnerable to this type of thing. Is that right? I think people that weren't raised with strong worldviews, right? I think there are people that I think we're all looking for answers, you know, we all have that same impulse that leads you to buy like a self-help book, right? Or that's that thing, you know, I see these ads on YouTube from time to time and they, they really make me sick of this person. He's just stacking money. He's like, oh, this job's so easy. And, and he's trying to sell this course, right? You can make this money too. And I can just imagine someone without a job or someone going through hard times. They see this guy and it's just envelopes full of cash that he's receiving from people. And he's like, I'm making this much a week and it's so easy. And you, you just sit there and think about all the people that are going to throw money at this scumbag. I can't even believe it's allowed to play. But I, I think that's it. People are desperate for answers. They're desperate to go, okay. They're also desperate for kind of an easy way out, right? Please just give me... Just give me the story of how everything's supposed to work. And then I'll just believe that. It eliminates a lot of problems. It eliminates a lot of stress to have a worldview foisted on you, right? Because you're not reevaluating. You're not having to bring anything new in, you know? So I think, I think all those factors. And again, you know, in a lot of these cases, traumas, hardships, or growing up in it, not knowing anything else, like those, those factors as well. Do cults violate human rights? Okay, I think to the extent, this is hard to say, right? Because if they violate human rights, I mean, what doesn't, right? Is it okay that churches and schools indoctrinate children? And, and you, can, you can say, oh, well, they're indoctrinating children into, into being healthy members of society or whatever. But the fact remains, they're indoctrinating people in the culture at large. You know, children don't have free will to just believe what they want. And part of that's just the way it is, right? Because you're you're learning the world from your experiences or whatever. And and I'm not saying, like, no one's free of that. We were all indoctrinated to some degree to believe certain things. Our whole context for how we view things is a result of some amount of indoctrination. A lot of the things we believe or take for granted are things that, you know, 200 years ago, people would have thought were totally nuts. And 200 years from now, we'll think are totally nuts, right? So to that extent, no. I think it comes back to this problem of like, if the person is sort of satisfied with it on some level, have their rights been violated? Think about like Q people or I don't know, even super far left identitarian type of people. They're, they're trapped in this sort of worldview too, right? And you could look at that. Like if you look at those Q people, right? When I see those people, I feel like they were subject to abuse to an extent. But who do you blame? Right. And I don't think that's much different than what I saw. That's a really tough question. I can't really answer it, but I, I don't I don't think so. No one was physically hurt. No one was there of their own free will. And if their civil rights were violated, I mean, how many people that give money to televangelists 
I mean, are their civil rights violated? Like at a certain point, it's like, hey, you're a grown person and you're making decisions. But then then I think where the question's interesting is with the kids, right? Because they they don't have a choice in that indoctrination. What emotional needs did this cult fill for these people? Community, acceptance, those are the basic needs. Beyond that, you know, ready access to sexual partners they wouldn't have otherwise had access to. There's a lot of that stuff happening. What? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge part of it. I think that's a big part of a lot of these groups. But yeah, it's a sense of community. It's a sense of shared values. It's a sense of, you know, I go back to this thing of like, you have this ready-made worldview. You don't have to think. You don't have to have existential crises or whatever. You just get how it all, hey, this is these are the answers, whatever. Um, but also access, you know, you're driving sports cars. You're going to nice restaurants. You're living in these places that you never would have been able to live. But the fundamental needs, I think, these people really needed community, friendships, relationships. And outside of this context, they would struggle a lot with that. Marshall, was this a sex cult? I, w- I would just say there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on, but that wasn't the central thing. You wouldn't get that vibe immediately, but over time you would, as you kind of heard stories and stuff, you would, you would get that vibe. Do you think maybe the girl you were dating, do you think there was ever a chance she might have tried to baby trap you into staying? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was very nervous about that. But at the same time, I'll say this. I was 17. I may have wanted to stay. She may have not had to try that hard. Right. She may not have needed a baby to get me to stay. And I, I wonder, you know, would it have been worth it? Could have, I don't think so. I don't think I could have put up with it. I, I think eventually I would have snapped no matter what. Yeah, I don't want to say any more about that because stuff happened later with other people. I have so many questions I want to ask you that I know I can't. So are there any groups or churches or entities you can think of that you would consider cults and you think people should stay clear of? Yeah, I think here I'm going to be careful just because there are so many people so indoctrinated in a similar way to cults that if I even start saying things, I may have already said too much on this topic. You might get hateful messages. People might come looking for me, whatever. I know that's overly paranoid, probably, and overly cautious. I think a lot of people have these mentalities, these groupthink mentalities stronger than ever because you're allowed to form those and keep those online. You can find groups that will constantly, they'll talk the way you talk. They'll use the jargon you use. You have these worldviews, entire worldviews created online. I think that's much stronger than people think. It's not just, oh, I'm right wing or I'm left wing or something. No, they're very specific groups with very specific goals, a specific set of language that's different than others. I think a lot of people are trapped in this. And I'm just going to say this to people listening. I, I don't know if this will help anyone, but if you put your phone down and you go about your day and you have this conflict in your head that makes you angry, afraid, upset on a constant basis, you're being indoctrinated. If you're constantly thinking along ideological lines about everything that's that's happening in your life and it's this constant thing that's hovering over you or taking hold of you, reassess, take a break rethink things you don't need to live that way chill out what do i feel like i just got a talking to by my summer camp counselor 
I don't know. I mean, that's just general advice. I feel like one of the most revolutionary acts someone can take in society today is to just not care so much about things, especially if you really understood, you know, how little you can you can change things. But even if you can, you can't change things if you're constantly upset, if you're constantly mad, if you're constantly sad about everything. You know, there's this attention economy online. These corporations, these governments, they want your attention. They want your mind. They want to carve out space there. They want to carve out territory there. And the way you keep them away, for sure, is by going, ah, whatever. It's fine, you know, and concentrating on what you can do in your life, concentrating on how you can improve your life, and just realizing, like, you don't have to fix the world. You can start by fixing things around you, the people around you. Start by being thankful for the things you have. Strengthen your relationships with people around you. Make your life better at your level. And then if you decide, hey, there's, like, this issue that I think is really important, now that you have some kind of context, start trying to form real groups. What could someone do if they have a loved one who is in a cult or is maybe being indoctrinated into one or something that looks like one? How can they support them? How can they prevent them from going off of the deep end? What would you recommend? My instinct tells me the best thing you can do is try to physically get them away for brief periods to do some fun sort of thing and then in very subtle ways promote, you know, normalcy. One of the issues with that is, you know, at this place, it was really heavily frowned upon to leave their locations with people that weren't a part of it. But, you know, at dinner, take them out to dinner, have a great time and just have them associate, you know, happiness with hanging out with you because there's plenty of unhappy things that happen uh, on there. And then, you know, try to win them over that way. At the end of the day, just try to maintain a relationship and, and just know that you know, unless you seek out experts to help you with that, um, the harder you push, like the harder they may just push back. Well, we are reaching the end of our time. I do have one final question for you, which is, do you think you could be a cult leader? I, I've thought about this a lot. Um, yeah, when you're in a cult, like when you're part of this, you go, what would that be like? How would that work? And I know I've known people that could, but again, you have to have this sense where you need it, where you need this constant attention and this constant reaffirmation. And I just don't think most people have that part. I think there's enough of me that would have the callousness of like, all right, if you're enough of a sucker, hey, that's your problem. And I think there's enough of me that, I mean, maybe not at this point, but could maybe maybe just enough charisma to rope in a couple of suckers. This is the other part of it that's interesting. And I'm just going to end on this. The leader is utterly imprisoned. They can't escape. Once you choose this life, there is no way out. These people aren't going to go. Even if he had changed his mind at some point, they would do everything they can to keep that thing going, especially the inner circle. So that was an interesting part of it, too, is like, what is that like? You can't leave your room without a group of people following you around. You never get the alone time, the privacy that a normal person would get. Never. Like, worse than a celebrity, right? Because they can go back to their house with their family, whatever. So in a way, they're more trapped than anyone. 